we are at the cusp of the full commercialization of space. So there is an inflection point at the moment. There are many startups, businesses, rather than the big ones like Virgin, that have a massive potential disrupting the, the launch industries. As a matter of fact, we're just a speck of dust in the trillions of galaxies out there. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week I'm joined by Bianca Cefalo, the co-founder and CEO of Space Dots. Welcome, Bianca. Hello, Jane. Thank you for having me. Now, if like me, you're old enough to remember the voiceover at the start of Star Trek, then the word space needs to always be followed by the final frontier. But of course, now it's not the final frontier. It's ripe for exploration. But first up, Bianca, explain what role Space Dots is going to play in this new open world of space. Yeah. So at Space Dots, what we're doing is redefining the qualification for space materials directly in space. So basically, we position ourselves at the crossroad between space tech and material science. And the way we're doing this is basically, so if you think about in space manufacturing and where everything is going to be done in space, in space factories and everything else, obviously that's manufacturing, but the entire value chain also has testing, qualification, quality insurance and everything else. Now, before we move everything that we're doing on earth in space, there is a conundrum, there is a paradox in the space industry, which myself and my co-founder and my team have seen throughout our career in the space industry for the past however decades, which is everything that needs to be used in space, especially if it's a new material, needs to be proven reliable in space first, which is something that the industry at the moment, well, at the moment, for the past decades, has been bypassing by simulating on ground, first obviously with software simulations as we always do before doing anything, but also simulating on Earth the environments that we're going to meet in space. But most of these siloed simulations of the vacuum, of radiation, of anything else, not really give you the validity of what it is. So what happens is that when you, are, especially when you're working on new materials like nanomaterials, 2D materials, metamaterials, 3D printed polymers and all of that, any time you change something in the manufacturing, in the powder, in the quantity of the mix of an adhesive, it's a new material. And by being a new material, it needs to be qualified again before it can be used in space. So what you do, you again start from scratch, simulation, simulation of the, the environments on Earth. Then you go to space, you have your validation checked, it's flown first, 
okay, we can actually use it and commercialize it or optimize it if that's that's the case. And this is what's been done so far. However, I always say is you wouldn't really test a rain jacket in the sun. So why are we testing materials that need to be used in space on Earth? Because especially if you look at materials that are used for thermal control properties, thermal control purposes, you can see on a data sheet of a material, the thermal conductivity, which is the main property that you will look at for a thermal control of a material for space, there is a mismatch of over 50% in between the performance that you see in space and the one that actually gets through a thermal vacuum chamber. And it's even bigger when you look at the data sheet. Again, this is because most of the things that we are sending into space are tested on Earth in environments which are not really true. So what we do is real-world testing in the environment where they will be used, which means low Earth orbit, geo, cislunar, Mars, wherever we go. And we can do this by being super small with our IP testing where we are shrinking down in the smartphone size all the testing labs that you would generally use on ground, but you can actually use them now as a payload attached to anything that can go into space, a hosted platform, a satellite, CubeSat. And it does what on ground you would do, but obviously at a smaller scale in the real environment and at a fraction of the cost. So we want to change the status quo in which the adoption of materials and the time to market of novel materials has been so far in the space industry. Because material science is moving so quickly, but the space industry or the processes that the space industry is using are not moving as quickly as it should be. And it's not moving as quickly, I guess, because it's very hard, isn't it, you know, to get these things right. So what kind of things do you see envisage? You've mentioned satellites and obviously, you know, they need to be built of of materials that are going to cope in the environment of space. But what other things do you envisage being in space that are going to need to be built from your materials? So basically, we're at the cusp of the full commercialization of space. So there is an inflection point at the moment. And obviously, we will have rockets because launchers will never cease to be there because we need to launch stuff into space. But then we are moving away from what it was just a satellite for um, broadband or communication or side imaging or constellation of satellites. We're moving towards, obviously, talking about decades forwards to space-based solar power, the ecosystem in space, commercial space stations, habitats that are not just orbiting around the Earth. And there is massive new ones of new technologies and new systems that are going to be built. If you think about, for example, the new... the novel Prada and Axiom Space collaboration that shows the fact that the space industry is moving away from being just functional, but it's going to be more human-centric. And by being human-centric, obviously, we want to use materials, fabrics, manufacturing techniques, and all of that, that are more human-centric. And obviously, everything that you send into space, if you want to have an ecosystem or a commercial space station that is livable, not just used as an R&D park in space, then you want to kind of replicate for the human's experience everything that we have here now, our desk, our table, our everything. Obviously, they're going to be floating unless obviously you're removing microgravity. But basically, there is a more human-centric factor in place, which means 
aluminium that we've been using for the past however decades coming from the Apollo mission is not going to be the only one that we're going to use. We need to have more lightweight materials. We need to have materials that will be able to obviously make geometries, designs, architectures that are as strong as they are powerful, if not more powerful. Things that are smaller so we can launch them at a lower cost than more of them. So there are so many aspects which every material we choose is a new challenge and a new business opportunity. And the reduction of the time at which we adopt this material is obviously going to be critical for the next ecosystems in space. Now, in your case, you are quite literally going to be launching this company. When do you envisage that happening? And what will that look like in terms of, you know, going to space? Yeah, so we will be launching our first minimum viable product at the end of the next year. So the way we're doing this, obviously now we're going through our tech development, but if you think about how we're enabling technology for this full service of qualification of materials in space, is a 10 by 10 by 2 centimeters, so bigger than our smartphone really, or an iPhone. And the way we launch them to space, we obviously are a payload, so we are not an independent satellite, so we will use logistic companies, like think about the orbit or any other or Nanorax or Sierra Space or, or Space Forge, all this cargoes to space that can actually accommodate payloads. So this is how we're going to be launching. And is that launch going to happen in the UK? We've seen obviously moves towards the UK space industry having actual launches the failed Virgin launch earlier this year, but also a lot of very promising rocket companies out there. So will you be launching from the UK? And and how do you more generally see uh, the UK's place in the sort of space race? Yeah, so from my perspective, we are really launchers agnostic. All we need to do for our business to actually survive and thrive is to accommodate as many customers as we can. So as we are accommodated onto a host provider, whether the host provider is flying on a Falcon 9 or is flying horizontally from the UK or from everywhere else in the world, that's okay for us. Obviously, the dream will be having this done locally because obviously that reduces the logistics. It reduces the time for integration from us to the host provider to the launcher and all of that. But I do see a big push. I think, let's say there are many startups, businesses, rather than the big ones like Virgin, that have a massive potential of disruptive or disrupting the, the launch industries in the UK and in Europe. I think there should be more focus on those ones rather than on some of the legacy that may or may not obviously deliver what was meant to be delivered in the UK, for example. And there has to be more focus on actually the investments, crucial investments onto the startups, because obviously something that you see Unfortunately, but it's, it's been the same for a couple of decades. The order of magnitude of public grants, the UK is doing fantastic now, especially with the last NC grant, 65 millions to give to tech developments. But if you look at the order of magnitude of grants and investments towards the UK and the European from the basis in Europe and the UK or from the government in the UK and Europe is an order of magnitude less 
with respect to NASA and the states. So obviously it's a very capital intensive industry. We can't really do anything with just tens of grants or hundreds of grants. We need millions. There is no way around this. So I think that's probably the focus, but the UK is really doing great. I was, I was really happy to see the NSEED coming about a couple of weeks ago. And it's really showing that the government and the entire industry in the UK really cares about becoming one of the major players. And this is what should be done more, actually. And it's unsurprising that the UK wants to be a major player because there's some very interesting reports out there in terms of how much the space economy is going to be worth. One report I read said it could be worth one trillion by 2030. I mean, are these figures just literally quite <laughs> plucked out of the air or or do you think there's there's a realistic chance of it of it being worth that amount of money eventually? I think there is, there is a massive chance that this is the case. Again, because we're moving from using space tech or defense tech just for what it was, like government. So let's say if you think about, especially in the UK, like Airbus Defense and Space or very similar corporates were born from as, as, as a sub-heritage of the World War II and then they developed into commercial space. And again, because we are not just doing satellites or rockets anymore, but there are way more services that are being provided thanks to the space technology. As a matter of fact, we're probably going to become as big as the re- retail market. Maybe not in the next 10 years, maybe hundreds of years or a couple of decades but i i do think that that that's going to be the case especially if humans are going to live in space it's going to be a space retailer market hsbc innovation banking our partner for this episode provides commercial banking services expertise and insights to the technology life science and healthcare private equity and venture capital industries To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en-gb. Of course, the commercialization of space does have its critics, though. Some people are horrified at the idea that we're going to exploit space when we're kind of not doing the greatest job of looking after Earth. So how do you answer people that say, you know, we shouldn't really be reaching out to space until we've learned how to kind of look after our own planet? Yeah, I think I generally spin this question or this concern around and think that me and you and all the audience that were going to listen to this podcast, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the exploration that we had, the age of the exploration that happened centuries ago. So we went through this exploration. The way it's been done, obviously, it's not the way we want to do in space. Reason why I'm the first advocate of not using colonization, but settlement, because using words properly, it's very, very important. But for me, I see now the exploration of space is just a natural organic evolution of what the human nature and the human curiosity is about. We've explored oceans. We've explored everything that we know now. We can be in the same room and we are maybe 30 nationalities at the same time because of that. That's an, that's That's been enriching for everyone. All we are doing now is just a bigger scale exploration to really understand. And I also think for me, especially personally, it's a bit of like understanding where we're coming from and why we're doing certain things we're doing. Because as a matter of fact, we're just a speck of dust in 
the trillions of galaxies out there. And if we can even grasp or stretch the surface of where we're coming from, thanks to the knowledge that we've developed as humans, that's already a big win for humanity itself. Now, I didn't really know this was a problem until I spoke to people that were dealing with it, but space junk is apparently quite a major issue. There's some really shocking stats out there about the amount of debris that's floating around from new satellites to kind of stuff that sort of falls off of um, the space station, I guess. Lots of other stuff that's just sort of orbiting. Are you going to be adding to that? Because, you know, you're going to be sending a lot of stuff up into space. And how do you deal with that issue? Yeah, so taking a step back, actually the mission of Space Thoughts is to reduce failures in space. I remember when it was like 10 years ago and obviously the cubes had boomed in the space industry and most of the technological developments or techno demos of novel materials or tiny structures or whatever had to happen because you needed to have the last validation in space. So you needed to send something in space, whether it's an academic group or whether it's a small startup or whatever. So you use CubeSat. And I remember I studied one. I actually sent one of those 10 years ago. It was for piezoelectric electric materials. Again, advanced materials that needed to be tested and proven in space first, not having the chance of using something like space dots. And so you send 200 CubeSats and generally the failure rate is massive. Maybe even 50% of those wouldn't work because they were made by students or again, people that were using materials or structures that weren't really properly tested for space. So by doing this work up front, you can obviously inform better the industry. Instead of sending millions of CubeSats just for one techno demonstration, you can use something like Space Thoughts that fits into any spare mass on everything else, but you can actually have validity and use materials that have actually been tested and proven in space before you actually construct something out of a new material and it may fail. There are massive failure rates of constellations, even Starlink, for example, 40 of one of the last constellations, if I remember correctly failed because of some solar flux that weren't properly predicted. This is also part of space thoughts, predicting the space environment as a service with data, not only just the testing of materials and informing better insurance companies and digital twins and software houses to better understand, okay, what are we actually going to do? So taking this step back from let's just don't send hundreds of stuff into space before we know how it works. Let's just do a, a bit of work before with something that is going to be like a massive piece of junk in the future and then we maybe think well this works in space let's use it this really doesn't what we're doing is it's kind of bridging the old space as it's called like corporation and the new space where the new space is extremely agile and obviously just want to send stuff in space and understanding does it work is it regulated no let's just bypass all the regulation all the procedures all the requirements we're bridging the two we want to understand, we want to understand from the heritage of the corporates how that was done. And we want to smooth line, streamline the requirements to make sure though that all the new space companies, especially materials, don't fall into the same pattern of just creating junk for the sake of a techno demonstration. Do you think though that we've thought hard enough about this problem before we've launched all these things and sent these things up there? Because I guess it's quite hard to collect rubbish in space. And I don't know anybody yet that's 
that's kind of thinking about that. It, it, again, it feels like we're kind of rushing ahead with something without necessarily considering the kind of downsides of it. Is that fair? There are loads of companies that are working on debris collection, debris recycling. And if you also, I don't know if you, if you read recently, the US was the first one to actually apply a fine to a satellite company that didn't deorbit or didn't, yeah, just, just left the satellite there. So the thing is, because space was, again, not used commercially by so many people, it was very unregulated. It kind of still is regulated but now that we are understanding okay there is there is a massive opportunity there is going to be commercialized there will be like hundreds and thousands of new companies coming up with new ideas and new innovation so we need to do something about this so this is probably also going to going to come from governments not just from the technologists creating something for the space industry that's a great point yeah that it absolutely needs uh, a good regulation things that perhaps haven't happened in the tech world here on on earth. But let's talk now a little bit about you. Now, when I speak to space entrepreneurs, they often have had a huge passion for space from back when they were a child. But your actual early passion was something a little bit more mundane and it was cars. <laughs> so tell me a bit about that. <laughs> it was. I always say I'm an accidental rocket scientist because <laughs> I started studying aerospace engineering because I wanted to be a Formula One racetrack engineer. I was obsessed with aerodynamics of high-performance cars. And that's something that I've seen from my dad. It wasn't an engineer. He still, We still have a family business, which is based on international trading of cars, spare parts. And so I would see all of these things from the inside out. A Ferrari, I would never see a Ferrari in one piece. I would see like the million pieces that create the Ferrari, which was amazing to me. And so my dad was like, because he saw me being so obsessed with Formula One on a Sunday lunch, he was probably should become an engineer. Nobody was an engineer, had no idea what I was. And so I, I literally went and Googled, how do I become an expert in aerodynamics? And that was aerospace engineering. So I started, I started that journey. And throughout my, my, my studies, then I stumbled upon, which is funny to say, hypersonic aerodynamics, interplanetary missions, microgravity, and all of that. And then I was, okay, aerodynamics for cars is cool, but hypersonic aerodynamics is better. And so I completely changed from the on-ground, whatever I wanted to do, to just space missions. And in fact, my, my first project and first job was for the NASA JPL Inside Mars mission, which is went on Mars in 2018. And uh, and from that, I've never really left space and I just stay there forever. <laughs> now, the other thing that you kind of stumbled upon was when you went to university and you started studying engineering, that you kind of realized the imbalance between girls and boys. I think you talked about in an article I read, having 10 girls in a class of 300, no female professors, and also a degree of sexism as well. So tell me a little bit about that, because you're now a STEM ambassador, which I guess has grown from that realization that, you know, there is a problem here. Yeah. So a good thing is that the stats have changed, at least from the university where I used to go in, in Naples. But yeah, during my, my, my first years, it was literally astounding to see that there was just one line of women, girls, and the entire room was filled with men. The reason why, obviously, then I started, I kind of wanted to, to give back to girls 
Because again, I've, I've never really had a role model in my life or, or someone who was from the tech industry because I don't come from a background where of engineers or anyone who had a degree, I'm the first gen graduated. My very first role model was my mom just for her life experience. But again, there wasn't a role model in, in the technology. And even to these very days, I was actually yesterday having a conversation with a friend of mine and I said, still to these very days, I hardly feel that founder in the space industry who is in my age bracket is relatable to me. It, it, I don't really see many of those. Yeah. Or, and so I, I was, I started going because I live in London and during my time at Therbest Defense Space, I, I understood there was the chances of volunteering as a STEM ambassador. And everything started from the moments where you have um, students coming to the corporate and spending um, summer days with you, those, those summer, the summers, let's say like working days. And one girl was sitting next to me during lunch. And she said, I don't think I will ever start. I want to study physics, but now seeing how the degree of imbalance there is in the corporate, I don't think I will ever want to start. It feels so intimidating and unapproachable. And that really break, broke my heart. I was just don't, like, don't, don't say that. So I went to girls' schools in London. This is what I used to do. I lived in North London. And, and then I started realizing that it wasn't about STEM or space or rocket science that wasn't really attracting girls to studying it or retaining talent, but it was the lack of people that they could be relatable to. So I remember one of the girls told me, she was so excited to see me there and she stayed there for the whole workshop. It was like a three hours long workshop I, I gave to the girls. It was super fun. And she said, you were so cool. And I've never seen any STEM ambassador coming here looking like me and saying, you can do this. She said, everyone who was coming here looks like my grandfather. And they say, there is a space for you in the space industry. She was another thing that is. So, so that's why I'm super passionate because again, I, I come from a background of no engineers, not having a role model in tech. And if by seeing what I do or what I say can just change one mind, a domino effect will be will be massive. Yeah, absolutely. The the value of role models is 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 huge, isn't it? Now not only were you kind of in the minority when you were at university, but also as a founder and you said in the space industry, but just even as a woman, you know, entrepreneur find founding a company, you were in the minority or still in the minority. How do you feel about that? And and what kind of would your tips be to other women who are thinking about founding companies? Yeah, being a minority is a fact. It's something that really, excuse my phone, pisses me off <laughs> because women are obviously not a minority in the humanity or like 51% of the population. But again, I, I think what really sometimes, you know, I don't want to use the term scares off, but 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 stops women to pursue a certain career is is because again that i think they're disqualifying themselves thinking they're not qualified enough overthinking that you know the usual imposter syndrome and uh, I, I, there is not a space for me in that room and whatever but none of most of them never really thought which is something i acknowledged as I worked with men for most of my life, is that not all the men sitting in a boardroom are smarter than you. Actually, they are. And most of them don't even have the qualification that you have. Some of them are there because it was the easier route to do, because maybe someone in their, in their family was an engineer or because obviously 
everyone was brainwashed to say, "Oh, you're a guy. You like cars. You are you you are you you like technology." Well, then of course you you can work in a in an industry that is technological. But n- not all of them are smarter than a woman. And I think there has to be this this belief that most women are overqualified and they should be in places of where decision is made is made. But they are not there just for the fear of thinking they are not enough. So it's a belief that needs to be really brought down. It's not about qualification or passion or whatever. And then obviously, let's face it, I've had harassment throughout my career, even, you know, when speaking with VCs or other founders or unsolicited advice or how I should talk to investors, how I should dress, how I should act. And yes, it, it hurts. But at the same time, like, I don't really care because I know that my knowledge and my passion and what I want to do goes beyond the way I look and I can't relate to you. So I'm not taking advice from someone who's never been in my shoes. So just don't listen. (laughs) Yeah. Self-belief is a hugely important thing, isn't it? And confidence. And like you say, that whole kind of... uh not feeling that you've got any imposter syndrome, but we've got a long way to go. I cannot let you go, even though we are running out of time before asking you about NASA. It must have been very exciting to work there. I hope you weren't the only woman in the room there because I feel like NASA maybe has a better balance, but maybe I'm wrong. But what was it like to be at NASA? (laughs) Yeah, so um, I didn't work specifically there. So I was working with a a subcontractor for NASA in Berlin. Uh, So they were working with the German Space Center and obviously there was like NASA people coming all over from all over the place but it was a fantastic experience because for really the first time moving from a university where it was like you know one percent of women then I moved into this company and then working with all the agencies around where there was a massive balance sometimes women were even more than men and there was not just one nationality in the room people were coming from everywhere all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of, of stories and life experiences. And I think that's what, what, what really made, what really makes big scientific missions a success because it's not just about your skills or again, it's, uh, or, or your academic achievements, but it's about your life experience and what you can bring as, as a new opinion or a new perspective into a room. And I think this is what the agencies, also the European Space Agency, actually, I've been there many times. I worked with them for many years. And it's just the diversity of having people coming from different backgrounds that can just challenge you to think differently. Well, it's good to hear that space tech has has a diversity. And on that optimistic note, I think we have to end because it's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTN podcast. Thanks, Bianca, for an out-of-this-world discussion. And thanks to everyone back on Earth who is listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter, where you can also find me at Jane Wakefield. And you can tell me what you think of the show and give me suggestions there too. But until next time, it's goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb to find out how innovation needs different. Thank you.